this morning from Matthew 24, beginning in verse 42. Matthew 24, 42. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you be ready too. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. When then, who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall, not, and, and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not um, expect him and an hour which he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. I'll pray. Lord, we are, are grateful for all that you have revealed to us, and we know these are things that, that we need to know, must know, or you wouldn't have said them. And so I, I pray that we would have willing, responsive hearts, God, to your word and to your purposes and will, and that we would say amen in our hearts, God, to all that you're wanting to say to us. In Jesus' name, amen. May you see them. Well, happy birthday to my dad, who's 89 today. Um, yeah, thankful that we still have him. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're still in the Olivet Discourse, and with this section of Scripture here, it begins here in verse 42 and goes through 2530. And Jesus is giving several parables with one focus, and that is he's talking to the nation of Israel and saying when he comes again, they should be alert and ready. And that he is going to judge them, Israel, as to whether or not they are in the faith or not. Faithful is how he describes it here, but I believe as we'll see that he's talking about simply in the faith. And then once he's finished addressing Israel and his coming, in chapter 25, verse 31, he talks about all the nations. And then, he, So just to read that, and when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. So there's a distinction being made. Here, So these verses, chapter 42, beginning in verse 42, are not talking about all the nations. It's talking about Israel. And in Israel, he wants them, in particular, to be ready for his next return. And that's important that I said next return, because it's clear that they, from Luke chapter 19, verse 44, Jesus says that Israel missed the day of their visitation, which is remarkable to think about, that Jesus had 
for three years proclaimed himself the Son of God who had come to save his people and to establish his kingdom. And he testified and proved who he was by many signs and wonders. And yet they missed the day of their visitation. So it seems that Jesus is saying that could happen again. And he doesn't want it to happen again. Now I say that in full consciousness that Paul says in Romans that when Jesus comes again, all Israel will be ready and they will be saved. But that, even though Paul is saying that's what's going to happen, it seems from what Jesus is saying that um, could possibly not happen depending on whether or not they believe. So in other words, faith is a choice. And even though God knows in the end that Israel will be saved, they still have to make a choice. Each individual has to make a choice, and that's why Jesus is giving us this passage here for the Jews, for Israel, that they would in fact be ready by placing their faith in the Lord. So the big focus here in, these, in this um, end of chapter 24, first part of chapter 25, is about faith and hope which are commodities that are not always maintained. They can be wasted. They can be lost. I don't think, in fact, I'm convinced that we cannot lose our salvation, but even those who have believed in Christ can stop believing. And we can become unbelieving believers. We are saved, but we are not any longer living in faith. We can lose our hope when we don't live with an expectation of his return. I, in praying for this message, I was again, um, came to mind um, the story of the ship in Endurance that was shipwrecked in Antarctica. Um, I believe it was during the early part of World War II. And it made international news. It was quite the, or, the, the drama. And if you've never read the book Endurance, um, I would highly recommend it. Um, the captain of the ship was a very solid Christian, Shackelford. Um, once the ship was, was wrecked and broken up hopelessly on the ice of Antarctica, he had to make the fateful decision to um, take a small group of men, only five or six I believe it was, and a, in a, one of the rowboats and try to make it to the nearest island where there was an outpost and get help, which itself was just pure miracle that they made it. Most treacherous seas in the world and, and with awful conditions, and they made it. Well, meanwhile, all the other men, over a hundred of them, he's left on the ice, not knowing when he would come back. And their conditions were horrible. I mean, they just were living in the other rowboats that were behind. They tipped them up on their side. They were living underneath them. And there was just just incredible squalor from, from all the penguins that were around and stuff, and they were in just terrible conditions. And the man that he put in charge was one of his senior officers on the ship who should have gone on the rowboat. But he was, in fact, demoted by Shackelford to stay on the ice with, his, with the other men. And the reason that he did that, that Shackelford chose him to stay, and it was not a demotion, is he looked over all of his sailors. He said, this one guy has the ability to have these men maintain their hope. Because he knew that if they lose their hope, they die. 
And so this guy, just remarkable man, every day he'd spring up out of bed, what bed it was, all these men just lying shoulder to shoulder underneath these boats, and he'd get them up and he'd say, men, pack up, today we're going to be rescued. And he did that every day for like 90 days or something. It was a long time. And he'd get up, men, this is the day we're going to be rescued. And all the men would pack up. And they'd stand and they'd look out at the ocean, hoping that Shackelford would come back that day. And then later he testified, when Shackelford finally did come back, that he thought, I cannot possibly motivate these men one more day. And on that day, help came. It's just a remarkable story of maintaining faith and hope in the most extreme circumstances. That's what Jesus is trying to say here to these to the men and women of Israel in the generation of the great tribulation. Maintain faith and hope during the most extreme of circumstances. So he says, be on the alert in verse 42. Your Lord is going to come, you just don't know when. But he is certainly going to come. Verse 44, for this reason, be ready. Be on the alert, be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think that He will. There is no question that He is coming. The only question is, will you still be hoping and, being, and believing that He is coming? And so then He's going to give three parables. The first is a parable of a servant who is either faithful or evil. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Faithful or, we would say, unfaithful, but Jesus says evil. The opposite of being faithful is being evil. Isn't that interesting? And that's how Jesus describes this man. He is faithful and sensible. Who then is the faithful and sensible slave? He's the guy that the master puts him in charge of limited possessions and says, I'm coming back. And when the master shows up, he's been a good and faithful steward. And the master is pleased. But he could have chosen not to have done that. So he says, blessed is that slave, verse 46, whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave, so it seems to me he's not talking about two men here. But he's talking about one man who has the potential of either being faithful and sensible or evil. One or the other. We choose. And so if that evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and eat with, and drink with drunkards, the master of that slave will come when he comes, and he doesn't know when he's going to come, verse 51, he will cut him in pieces and assign him a place with hypocrites, weeping shall be there and the gnashing of teeth. Faithful and sensible or evil? Evil... Because he's not believing the master will return. So what makes a person faithful? It's simply having faith day to day to day. Faithfulness is a consistent faith. That's all it is. It's a consistent faith. And in this case, it's believing consistently day to day that the master will honor his word, he is trustworthy, he will do as he said, and he is going to come again. And so the slave believes what the master has said. That's the issue here. 
It's a, the, every one of these three parables is a choice, is a distinction between faith or unbelief. The evil slave doesn't believe the master is going to come back anytime soon. He does not have faith, therefore he is not faithful. You cannot be faithful without faith, is the simplicity of it. Chapter 25, parable of the ten virgins. Then the kingdom of heaven will be comp comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. When they, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent took oil in their flask along with their lamps. And while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, saying, No, there will not be enough for us and for you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. And later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered and said, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Be on the alert then, for you do not know the day nor the hour. Now again, this is not the church. We would be amiss, I believe, to think that because um, virgin and bridegroom is mentioned, that this is the bride, the church, and the bridegroom being Jesus. The bridegroom here is Jesus, but the ten virgins are not the church. The bride of Christ is never referred to as plural, not a single time. He does not have multiple brides. He does not have ten brides here, and five of them just got locked out. No, these are not brides. These are bridesmaids. And so the, these would be friends of the bride, friends of the bridegroom perhaps, but they are not brides. And the oil is often in Scripture a picture of salvation. I don't believe that is the case here. Because again, you can't lose your salvation, you can't wear out your salvation. These women, all ten of them, had oils in their lamps. The problem is that five of them didn't bring enough oil, and when the oil in the lamp burned out, they didn't have anything left. Because it says in verse 8 again, our lamps are going out. They had been burning while they were sleeping. And now they've consumed that. Well, wow, that's, how long were they sleeping? Days? This is the lamp. Okay? It's that size. When you go to Israel, they sell these things everywhere. This, this is the, the bridesmaid's lamp. And so it's a tiny little thing. That's the wick right there. It doesn't hold much oil. And so it wouldn't take long for that oil to be burned up. And so that gives you an idea. When they took only enough oil for this lamp and nothing more, from the very beginning they were saying, we don't believe he's going to show up tonight. Because see, you never quite knew when the bridegroom would come. Usually he, it was a year betrothal, and sometime 
near the end of that year, we don't, he, the bride never knew, the bride's maids never knew, but sometime near the end of the year, he would come in the middle of the night and announce that he was coming. And so that's what's happening here. Not a word is said about the bride. This is about the bride's maids. And five of them did not believe he was coming. Five did believe he was coming, and that's why they took extra oil. Don't read too much into the oil. The question is readiness. And what makes you ready? Faith. Faith is what makes a person ready for the return of Christ. No faith, you're not ready. And if you have faith, you're ready. And, it, and to not take any more oil than what fits in this little bowl is to say, I don't believe he's coming tonight. Okay, 10 years from now, I'll do another visual aid. <laughs> Parable of the talents. For, it's just like a, for it is like, just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and he went on his journey. Now, let me just pause, because he's introduced here the concept of each according to his own ability. And I've been already said several times that this is, all these parables are about faith or its opposite, unbelief. And so does God give faith proportionately? Because these men are getting what I believe is faith in different amounts. One, three, one, two talents, and one, five, three, and one. And the answer is yes. He gives sufficient faith to be saved to all people. Any person can believe. Any person has sufficient ability to believe. How much faith does it take to believe? Not much. All we have to do is just say, yes, Lord. Amen, Lord. It's just a matter of yielding to him. But we know when Paul outlines the, the spiritual gifts, he doesn't seem to give us all the spiritual gifts, but one spiritual gift that he does mention is the gift of faith as distinguished from the ability that all people have to believe. All people have the sufficient faith to be saved. But some people are given a greater measure of faith because the spiritual gifts are given in different measures. 1 Corinthians 12 speaks of this, and 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts, but particularly chapter 12, the Spirit distributes the gifts, he distributes them to each as he would will, and he distributes them in various measure. So I think that's what we're seeing reflected here. Every person is given the ability to believe. Some people are given greater faith than others. I don't think I'm one of those, but that would be, it was true as we look around us, even in the body of Christ, we can see that some people seem to be blessed with a greater ability to believe God than others do. But all have the ability to believe unto salvation. And so he says, verse 16, Immediately the one who had received the five talents went out, and he traded with them, and he gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. 
But he who had received the one talent went away and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. And the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The one who had received the two talents came and said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, you good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, by the way, talent is not like we use it today. You know, the talent to run a mile in four minutes, you know, talent to play, you know, the piano. That is not an ability. Talent is a unit of measurement for money. And it was the largest unit of measurement that money could have. And so this, we don't know whether this was a, a talent of silver or a talent of gold, but it was a large sum of money that was given to each of these men. Verse 24, and the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be, this is amazing, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering which, where you scattered no seed. What kind of man is that? Listen to what he says. Master, I don't know whether he was smiling at the time, I hope not, but he says, Master, I knew you to be a thief. That's what a person is who he says, you reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. I knew you to be a thief, an unscrupulous man lacking integrity. Wow. What he's doing is he's describing himself. That's what he's doing. And, and this is so astounding. Talk about the classic case of projection in Scripture. He is projecting onto the master what is true of himself. He is a thief, and he is seeking to gather where he has not sowed. That's him, not the master. And see, we do this all the time. We project onto other people what is true of ourselves. It's happening in politics all the time. Unbelievable. And it's typically on the wicked man, because good men don't do this. Good men are good because they're humble and they see themselves as they truly are and they're not going to project onto other people what is true of themselves. But that's what this man is doing. He sees God in his own image. How he is is how he sees God. So common. I was afraid. Yeah, I'd be afraid of a God like that. I was afraid and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See? You have what is yours. And the master answered and said, You wicked, lazy slave. Now, you knew I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. I don't think he's admitting to this. He's just saying, If this is what you really thought of me, then why would you do what you did? It makes no sense. If you really thought that I am cool and, and, and vindictive, and have no integrity, and I'm a thief, then why would you do what you did? Makes no sense. You know why that man buried that talent? Look at what the master says. You ought to have put my money in the bank, 
And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. So why didn't he? See, if he really was afraid of the master and afraid that he was going to be, you know, whatever, you know, punished by the master, whatever, if he was truly afraid of him and he was afraid that he would lose the master's money by investing it, then just put it in the bank and the master has his money with interest. But that's not, the, he was lying. He was projecting onto the master what is true of himself and he was lying about what his intentions were. You know why he buried that talent? Because if he'd put it in the bank, he would have had to put it in the bank under the master's name. It would have never been his money. And when the master came, the master could just go down to the bank and get his own money out because it was deposited in the name of the master because it was the master's money. And he doesn't believe the master is coming again. So to deposit the money in the bank under the master's money, master's name is to never see that money again. And he wants it for himself, and he believes the master is not returning. It is pure, rank, unbelief. And that's why he buried it, so he could keep it for himself. This had nothing about not wanting to lose it because the master is returning. He didn't believe the master was returning, and he wanted to keep it for himself. And the master cuts through all the deceit, the wickedness, the lying, and says, you're the problem. I'm not the problem. How many people walk this earth today and said, I don't believe God because God is this? And most, much of the time, they are simply projecting onto God their own wickedness. Because he is not wicked. He is a good God. And all that he does, he does in justice and in mercy. And when people fail to respond to him and to trust him, it is for their own interest that they're not. So the master says, verse 28, Take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But the one who does not have, and he does not have because he did not trust, he was given the talent, but he didn't trust, so he even what he does have shall be taken away. And cast out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' final warning here to Israel is that they not miss the next visitation. And that they be prepared for that return by faith in Christ. The one thing that Jesus will look for when he returns, Luke 18, 8, is faith. Will the Son of Man find faith upon the earth when he returns? That's all he's looking for. Just faith. How big a deal is the lack of faith? Well, we can see in this passage... God regards it as three things, evil, foolish, and wickedness. Think about that with me. How big a deal is it to not believe in Jesus for salvation? Those that don't believe might consider themselves wise, and those who believe as fools. 
The Bible says it is just the opposite. Those who believe are wise, and those who don't are fools. But not only are they foolish, Jesus says it is evil and it is wicked to not believe that Jesus is coming again and to place your faith in him. We all have dear friends and loved ones who have not yet placed their faith in Christ. It is difficult for us as those who love them to characterize them as evil, foolish, and wicked. I get it. But no one loves them more than the one who gave his life for them. And Jesus is saying, it is evil, it is foolish, and it is wicked to not believe in Jesus Christ and his soon return. I pray that those that I know who have not placed their faith in Christ will be so convicted that they would see that that refusal to believe is evil, foolish, and wicked. And by the conviction of God's Spirit, that they would turn to Him and place their faith in Him, humbling themselves, seeing themselves as God sees them. To be able to go a lifetime and not place your faith in Christ when you have heard the gospel sometimes over and over and over again says to is so mind-boggling to me because I know the older I get, and I know this is true for old, all of us, the more I realize what I am capable of. How incredible, corrupt, and deceitful that my heart can be. But I have to recognize that even that understanding is by the Spirit of God. And apart from the Spirit, we will not see ourselves as we truly are. And that you can live 80, 90 years, and at the end of your life say, I don't need Him. Wow. Is there no self-understanding? Is there no understanding of our own innate wickedness that you could live that long and say, I have no need for a Savior. I have no need to be forgiven. Amazing. But is it any wonder in the face of that, because I believe that the Spirit of God is convicting, and that throughout a person's life, he pricks his conscience, he speaks to his soul, and he says, this is wrong. And you spend all those years resisting the Spirit of God, quenching the Spirit of God. That is not just simple blindness. It is evil. It is foolish. It is wicked. God have mercy. 
How significant, on the other hand, is, is just simple faith. Just simple faith. Jesus, save me. Jesus, come quickly. And I believe you're coming quickly. God regards the faithful one, the one who lives in faith, as sensible. Not stupid, sensible, prudent, and good. Sensible, prudent, and good. I don't often consider myself sensible and prudent. There are so many things that I don't know the answer to. Did you know, I looked this up, that the prepping industry in the United States right now, before COVID, was a $500 million a year industry. The estimate now is that it's in the billions of dollars every year since COVID. COVID made lots of people preppers that weren't preppers before. Even Oprah has talked about prepping. And what does that new woman need to prep for? I mean, she's a billionaire. Billionaires are building bunkers all over the place. Going prepared to go underground. Millions, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars spent prepping because we think catastrophe might be coming. And they're not prepared for the true catastrophe. To face the living God. And that there is no question is coming. We are all going to die and every person will stand before God. I don't know how to prepare for a coming disaster and I don't think anybody does, quite frankly. But I do know how to prepare for the coming of Jesus. I do know how to prepare for standing before him in his presence one day. And it is simply by placing my faith in him for salvation and not trusting in myself. And God says, that is a sensible and prudent person. That is a good person. Praise God. God thinks so. Because when you've got no other answer but Jesus, and you say, Jesus, you are the answer, God says, that's all I was looking for. That is a sensible, prudent, and good person. What is the consequence of not believing? Well, we're told that in this passage too. Each of these three parables ends with a consequence for unbelief. In chapter 24, verse 51, the consequence is eternal punishment. It says, And shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites, weeping shall be there in the gnashing of teeth. In chapter 25, verse 11 and 12, there is the consequence of eternal separation. And later the other virgins also came saying, Lord, Lord, open up to us. But he said, I truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And then chapter 25, verse 30, there's the consequence of eternal anguish. And cast out the worthless slave into the out of darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Not to believe in Jesus as your Savior and one who is coming again at an hour and day that you do not know. A person who makes that choice to not believe in Jesus 
will face an eternal punishment, eternal separation from God, and eternal anguish. So many Christians today hold out the hope that if a person dies not having placed his faith in Christ, that he will be given another opportunity after he dies. Wouldn't that be nice? There is nothing in Scripture that indicates that anyone will be given another opportunity. The Bible says it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. These five foolish virgins were not given another opportunity. The door was locked, and Jesus said, Depart, I do not know you. That is what humanity will face if we refuse to believe on Jesus. Eternal punishment, eternal separation, and eternal anguish. That is true for the Jew. Jesus is writing these things to Israel, and it is true for all of humanity. Now, why do I emphasize that it's true for the Jew? Jews need to be saved. Yes, they are the chosen people. To them, all the covenants have been given. To them, all the revelation of God's word has been given. But the Jew must be saved. And Jesus is writing to Israel. Clearly, they are not saved. Clearly, they need to be. What are we to do? It's not complicated. It's be prepared. And the only thing that prepares us is faith in Jesus. For the unbeliever, be saved. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For the believer, there's a lesson here for us as well. It is to continue in the faith that we might please our master. As Jesus says in the corresponding passage in Luke, he says, Be on your guard that your hearts might not be weighed down by dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life. Keep on the alert at all times, praying in order to have strength to escape all these things and to stand before the Son of Man. Luke 21, 34 to 38. So for those who do believe, there is a lesson here for us as well. Continue in the faith. Be on guard that your hearts not be turned away from the faith. That we might be believing believers to the very end when he calls us home. Not to have our hearts weighed down by dissipation, wild living in other words, drunkenness, we just don't care. We live as though there's no tomorrow. Don't be like that as a Christian. Or to have your hearts weighed down by the worries of life. Also not an option for the Christian. Keep on the alert at all times. Praying in order to have strength to escape and to stand before the Son of Man. I was going through my files um, 
yesterday and came across an article that I hadn't read in several years. And it was written by Larry Crabb, counselor, um, professional counselor, writer. I appreciate him um, quite a bit, especially in the last couple things that he wrote, a couple books. But this was a letter that he wrote concerning a friend of his, very, very well-known pastor. I won't mention his name now. But he wrote the letter. It was an open letter. He had permission to publish it from, from this pastor's wife. But this pastor, um, after two, two, three decades in the ministry, huge, um, thriving ministry, married with three sons, and he found a soulmate who was not his wife. And he left it all for the sake of this other woman. Tragic story. Larry Crabb pled with him to turn away from his sin. He wrote the article and he said, if you think that knowing Jesus, if you think that the Christian life, that Christianity ought to give you greater joy than the pleasures of sin, you are ripe for disaster. Christianity was never intended to give you greater pleasure than sin. And if that's your hope, that Christianity will give me more happiness, more joy, more pleasure, more peace than a life of sin, Crab says you are set, you are set up for the downfall. Our hope is in Jesus and being with Him one day. And there is no promise in God's word that this life of waiting on Jesus is going to be more pleasurable than a life of sin. That man is having greater pleasure, he would say, in his soulmate than he was not being with his soulmate and doing the right thing. It's not about pleasure. It's not about our joy, our satisfaction, it is about our master and finding joy in him and knowing even that joy will not be complete until we see him. And that's when we will know the complete joy of Christ. Until that time, we live a life of faith and hope. Day to day. And the good news is, this could be the day. This could be the day when Jesus returns. And like those men stranded on the ice, and that one man saying to his fellow soldiers every day, pack up your bags. This could be the day. And it wasn't in vain. It's an important thing to maintain the faith, to maintain the hope, and to encourage the same in our fellow believers. I'll close us in prayer. God, thank you so much for your faithfulness to us. We will never, ever have any reason to question it. As the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening, God, so your faithfulness abounds to us. God, I pray that we would be faithful to you, humbly walking before you, turning away from unbelief, choosing faith, choosing to believe that your word is true and that you could return at any time. 
may us we be found ready. The one thing, God, that you're looking for, not commitment, not great deeds, not miracles. You're simply looking for faith. Find us in the faith, Lord Jesus, I pray. Trusting you, believing in you, waiting upon you, saying no joyfully to ourselves because there is a, a greater prize lying ahead that we want to lay hold of. But most of all, simply because we want to please you who gave your life for us. In Jesus' name, amen.